Thank you all for joining us this morning and sitting together. And welcome to any who joined after we started. So as I mentioned at the beginning, this month is on sila, or ethical living. And the preset, and everybody can hear me okay? Just a thumbs up. Sound is good? Good. And the precepts are one aspect of ethical living. I'll put them up and screen share them in a minute, but I'm going to make some um, kind of preface remarks about them. They're a powerful and often challenging part of the path, these precepts. Powerful, I think, because they offer us really practical guideposts for living an ethical life. And challenging because either they remind us of the restrictive rules we were raised with and resisted against, or because we try to follow the precepts and we either don't or can't or choose not to, and then we get into judging ourselves. And each of the five precepts contain within them complexities and nuances. Whether it's the challenges of being a gardener and facing, you know, if and how we eliminate unwanted pests or lifestyle choices, which may include meat protein or intoxicants, or how we interpret the precept of taking only what is freely given. So we're going to be exploring these, um, and I think there it's a fruitful conversation to have with each other. A few preface remarks as we begin this exploration. Studying and practicing with the precepts is not a test of purity. Yeah, when we go on retreat, we take these five precepts, sometimes people take eight, and they're strict rules for how we conduct ourselves on retreat. But we're all lay practitioners living our lives. So this isn't a test of purity, and it's not an opportunity to start feeling guilt or shame or start down a path of self-judgment. Gil Fransdell puts it this way, the precepts are based on the observation that some actions lead to suffering and some actions lead to happiness and freedom. So asking ourselves whether my action leads to increased suffering or increased happiness for myself and others is a springboard for investigation. It's not a bunch of shoulds. It's really about how I want to live in this life. And I think most of us have the intention of being fully present, acting with kindness and compassion, being mindful of what's going on in our mind, body, and heart, and speech. And this practice is about honesty. We really ask ourselves when our behavior is not in sync with our values, you know, what are we going to do about it? So this morning we're going to talk a lot about that. It's also not a time to compare. Is she living according to the precepts better than I am? Or am I more virtuous than he is? It's just an investigation when you look in the mirror between me and me. I mean, sometimes I think my mother's in the mirror, but mostly it's just me and me. You know, we are living in this human realm, 
we're living beings with all the conditions and experiences that come along with us at any moment. So we're going to be exploring this with some gentleness and honesty and, and maybe even a little humor. It is said that living according to a set of ethical standards helps us live a life of blamelessness and trustworthiness. We have a code for our ethical conduct and to the best of our ability, we follow it. And as a result, we have little or no regret about our behavior. Or when we do something, we make a misstep, a misspeech, we apologize for it. Tanisaro Biko says that if you stick by the standards of the precepts, then as the Buddha says, you are providing unlimited safety for the lives of all. When you find that you can trust yourself in matters like these, you gain an undeniably healthy sense of self-respect. There are differing views on the precept. Tanisaro Biku is pretty much towards the no-nonsense pure um, look at it, kind of following it to the letter. Others kind of reframe them or as reflections, and I see them as guideposts for me. And I try to keep practicing with the main intent of the precept. Just as I was using the word during our meditation of a being aligned, I think the precepts are part of how we stay aligned so that our behaviors are consistent to the best that we're able with our values and the practices and teachings of the Dhamma. So I recently checked in with Tim about the intent of this talk, and he said to me that in the Buddha's time, the precepts were not laid out in a list like we have them. They were just incorporated in the overall teachings. He also said that monastics regularly share how they're working with the precepts, and they look at any resistances or issues that have arisen. So this exploration I'm offering today has a real place in our tradition. I also, um, Rosie's part of this Dharma breakfast group that I've been in, and last Friday um, I brought up the precepts as a, a way for us to talk about what's happening in our practice. And, and, you know, some of the women just had such helpful perspectives on the precepts. One said that they're aspirational, they're not prescriptive. Others said, oh, they're a beautiful container. One found the precepts way too wordy, and she used the image of it's like putting on clothing that is too tight. For others, they felt that every time they engaged with the precepts, it was in a fresh way, and they really liked chanting them. Another put it this way, that ethical living is freedom. So I am going to try to put up, I'm going to share this screen. Can everyone see this? It says precepts on the top. Can anybody see it? Lyndall, I can see you. Can you see it? Go Great. So these are the five precepts. And the one at the bottom is one of three different 
um, teachers who have reframed them in more positive ways. But you're probably all familiar with them. I undertake the training to refrain from taking life. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from false and unskillful speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxication that leads to heedlessness. The one below is from Philip Moffat, and he starts each of his with, to the best of my ability, and then he has reframed them in positive language, the first being I will protect and support life and encourage the fulfillment of potential for love and understanding. And it goes on. I will leave this up for a bit if I can. If I move, if I move it over, you can still, um, you can still see it. I never know how um, that all works with, um, with that. So we're going to um, take a couple minutes before I kind of get into the main part of my talk. I'd like you to just close your eyes, find your place of quiet, and ask yourself about how you relate to the precepts in your practice. Are they a central part? Are they something that you recite at retreats in the first Monday of, in January of every year, but they don't, you don't find them very useful? Do you find that there are feelings of stress and resistance arise when you contemplate them? So let's just take just a couple minutes to give everyone an opportunity to be in touch with how do you relate to this topic of precepts. Being really honest with yourself, there's no expectation. Whatever is the truth for you is the truth for you. Perhaps it'll change at the end of this morning and maybe not. Whatever is up, whatever is the honest response to where the precepts, precepts are in your practice is just fine. So whatever is your inclination towards the precepts, I welcome those and I welcome your openness to this exploration. And so with that being said, let's, let's look at it. Each precept begins with the phrase, I undertake the training. Just like the entire path, it's a training, a process, a practice, 
It's not a one time and done. We keep the process alive. And the second part of each of the original statements is a refraining from. As you saw in Philip Moffat's reframing, he removes the refraining from and re-translates um, them into a positive um, language. There's also some wonderful positive reframing by Thich Nhat Hanh and Larry Yang. And at the end, I'll, I'll give you those, those um, resources. But just like with other aspects of the Buddha's teaching, the phrase ehipasako, see for yourself, is really ripe territory for practicing with the precepts. We explore them, we understand them, we practice with them, and we make them we own, our own. The idea is to make them really work for us. Know that they're practical and we're something that we can follow. That this is a, it's a set of guidelines that help us keep attuned to our values and priorities. As we do that, being so honest with ourselves is really important. If we're trying to make a change in one of the precepts, we ask ourselves, is this change I'm encouraging myself to take on? Is this one that leads to less suffering, more suffering, happiness and freedom? Am I justifying aberrant behavior or am I really skillfully finding ways of living within a framework that works for me? Let's look at each of them and see some of the challenges and issues. Please note that the ones that I am sharing are the ones that are present for me. I'm going to encourage everyone to find those that work for you. But I thought that I would share some of how I've been working with these five. And hopefully that will be um, a kind of a springboard for you to do some of your own investigation. So the first, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living creatures. The most obvious challenge arises for me from being an omnivore. And I consume the flesh of formerly living beings. I spent a number of years as a vegetarian and I find that my body feels better with some meat protein. So if you're a vegetarian, a vegan or not, how do you understand that for yourself? How do you explain it? I'm also a gardener and a householder. Slugs eat some of my plants. Moths drop eggs on my broccoli and cabbage. And then in the house, I have an infestation every early summer of sugar ants. So with spiders, I talk to them and I get out my little piece of paper and my glass and I take them very carefully outside. But I don't do that with sugar ants. I don't even know how to do that with sugar ants. A, a sweet Dharma friend, well, we were talking about this, and she said she has gophers in her garden and that she has been killing them mindfully. Well, is that an oxymoron? Can we actually kill mindfully? You know, then, you know, expanding this even more broadly, 
over the years, I've you know discovered that I believe that trees are living beings. I've learned about how aspens communicate with each other. So all this wood that I have in my house, and I have campfires, what about you know our decision about what are sentient beings and what aren't? Is it just kind of human hubris that we decide which ones deserve um, being alive and which ones aren't? Now, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he talks about it in a no-nonsense way. And it's helpful to at least hear this. If this precept allowed you to kill living beings when their presence is inconvenient, that would place your convenience on a higher level than your compassion for life. Convenience would become your unspoken standard. And of course, then that provides huge tracts of fertile ground for hypocrisy and denial. I'm sure many of you have examined this precept and later we'll have a chance to hear how each of you have made peace with it. The second, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Sometimes it's stated, I undertake the training to refrain from what is not freely offered. And how important is that word freely? I think few of us here steal, but do we take up more space in a conversation or a friendship? Is our sense of me, this self, always in the lead, always the center of the world we're in? I don't know how successful I am with knowing whether something has actually been offered. And certainly in friendships, sometimes I just jump right in and talk about me without checking in with the other person, whether they have the time and emotional space to be engaged in that way. Many American Buddhists look at this precept in even a broader way about whether our consumption level can be justified given what an unequal distribution of goods and resources there is in the world. You know, in minor ways or major ways, do we take up more than our fair share? Do we act living in the West here with so much abundance? Do we act from a place of entitlement and privilege? All good questions. The third one, I undertake the training to refrain from wrong conduct in sexual pleasures. Or sometimes it's stated as refraining from developing inappropriate sexual relationships. It's more broadly defined as not abusing our sexuality. Making sure that the relationship is as important, if not more important, than the sexual gratification. So how we treat the other person with whom we're involved sexually is really the key. For five years or more, I was one of the staff people at the teen mindfulness retreats, and we always added a component to this precept about refraining from flirting. And it really gave these young people an opportunity to look at what kind of messages do we send when we're being flirtatious? The fourth one is about speech. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harsh speech. 
Recently at Clear Mountain, Ajahn Nisibo gave a talk about wise or right speech. He said the Buddha only taught directly about no lying and no idle chatter or gossip. The other aspects of wise speech are really essential too. Being truthful, timely, appropriate, not harsh, and of mutual benefit. For me, I can comply with avoiding false speech pretty easily, and I've worked hard at being a good listener. The challenges come with gossip, talking about other people behind their back, or idle speech, or knowing when it's appropriate to say something that may be critical. And when I have to say that, how to do it kindly and clearly, and asking myself, is this for the benefit of the other person? A really big one for me is refraining from offering advice when it's not being requested. And then there's the wonderful acronym of W-A-I-T, WAIT. Why am I talking? Trying to be more skillful and sensitive in this area. The last one, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants, which can lead to heedlessness. This is a bit of a confession, but I indulge modestly in both marijuana and alcohol. And here I look at the latter part of the sentence where I believe my behavior is not harmful to me or others and doesn't lead to misbehavior or heedlessness. And yet I really have to ask myself whether I'm just doing this for my own convenience and preference of doing what I like doing. I shared this at Clear Mountain a week ago. So I have a good friend and he sometimes comes over um, on a weekday evening and we're both just so filled with our daily activity. We both work full time and so there's just, we're right in our heads. And so having a glass of wine or a beer or a toke has really been a helpful way of kind of getting out of our heads. So a couple of weeks ago, I said to him, would you be willing to have me lead us in a guided meditation? And so we spent three, four, five minutes, and I guided us from our heads down into our bodies. And for me, it really worked. Now, I don't know if that's going to mean I'm not going to drink or smoke weed, but it was a lovely um, experience of knowing that I could do that. So going back to Tanisha Obiko, he says that it's important that the precepts are doable, that they're practical and simple, and that it's possible to actually live within the standards. So I want to take just a few minutes talking about practices and how to really make them one's own. A couple months ago at Clear Mountain, there was this monk who came to talk and he said, he was asked, what's the most important thing you learned in 17 years as a monk? And his answer was being honest with myself. Of course, you want to be honest with other people, but he said being honest with myself was the most important part. So as we make these precepts our own, there's no need to hide, obfuscate, deceive. If there's a hint of hypocrisy or justification, just examine it sit with it, maybe journal about it. I think having a Dhamma friend, a precept buddy, 
you know, talk about it with some of your Sangha friends, because I think all of us are struggling in the same way of making our ethical guidelines really alive and workable for us. Many years ago at a retreat with Philip Moffat, he asked us all to rewrite the precepts for ourselves. It was a wonderful process. So, you know, I encourage you to do that as well. If it works for you to take the first precept and instead of saying, refrain from killing any living being, to saying, I undertake the training to do no harm, really sit with that and, and understand what that means for you. What is it in the service of? And remember how this year we've we spent a month talking about delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. And in delusion, sometimes we are so inclined, excuse me, towards misperceptions or misinterpretations. Again, being really honest with yourself, is there delusion um, present? In a recent talk, Tim reminded us to listen to the feedback of life That's a wonderful practice. And as always, I think we probably say this in every single talk, you keep practicing mindfulness. We practice the training of the mind. And in that present moment mindfulness, we can see whether there's unskillful behavior, unskillful thinking justification. For the second precept, the nuance of refrain from taking what is not freely offered gives us really an opportunity to look at how we give and how we take. I think a way to work with this might be to explore how do you feel, how do I feel when others have taken from me or from us what we haven't actually offered. It can be a really good starting point. Because when we look at how I feel when I've had something taken that I did not freely offer, it can lead me to have a greater sensitivity for when I might be doing that with others. For the third precept about um, wise speech, one of the women in the Dharma group said that sometimes she found that she stretch the truth some when she's been kind of called out about something that she didn't behave correctly, that she didn't want to fail the expectation she had for herself. Or what kind of person was she? Instead of just owning up to whatever the behavior was that may have caused some problems for others, she was kind of stretching the truth. Another friend in the Dharma Breakfast reminded us that there's metta practice inside working with the precepts. A reminder to do no harm to oneself. Bringing that do no harm aspiration to oneself is really important. Another is looking at what's the clear intent of each precept. The first precept about refrain from killing is really the spirit of reverence for life and living a life of non-harming. The 
other two resources that I mentioned before, if you go, if you Google Thich Nhat Hanh mindfulness trainings or Larry Yang diversity trainings, diversity precepts, you'll find both of them. And I wanted to end my talk this morning with this, a couple sentences from Thich Nhat Hanh's mindfulness trainings. It's from his last one on nourishment and healing. And it's just so beautiful. I will practice coming back to the present moment to be in touch with a refreshing, healing, and nourishing elements in me and around me. Not letting regrets and sorrow drag me back into the past, nor letting anxieties, fear, or craving pull me out of the present moment. I am determined not to try to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. Thank you so much for exploring this with me. I appreciate it. And um, try to get back to, um, here we are. So I'm going to um, have us go into breakout groups. Well, welcome back everybody. Nice to see familiar faces, faces we haven't seen for a while. Nice to have everyone here. So um, I think you can unmute and, um, or you can go down to the reactions button on the bottom and raise your hand. And I'd love for all of us to be able to hear from each other, how'd this land? What's happening with the precepts in your life and making them your own? and having that be part of your ethical living. Anybody? I know you don't want to listen to me anymore. I felt as though it helped me to, the discussion we had in our breakout room and today's talk helped me to Keep in mind that so much of my practice is comes from my intention, mm-hmm. and and in some of the ways the precepts for me are somehow uh, filtered through the lens of my intention. Mm-hmm. There are times when maybe. It, you know, I've accidentally stepped on an ant or accidentally swatted a mosquito or accidentally not left something behind that should have been left behind instead of taken. And those weren't, for me, intentional acts of disregarding a precept. Um, and so it helped me to remember there is a lens of intention to my precept practice. Thank you for sharing that, that intentionality and also the word accidentally seems to imply a kind of gentle relationship with ourselves and 
how we walk through the world. And um, do you want to say anything more about um, specific intentions? No, I'm okay. Okay. Thanks. Okay, yep. thanks. Anyone else? How, how does this land for you? Are there challenges or is it kind of easy peasy? Hey Lillian. Yeah, I think um, for me it's, it's extremely challenging. Lots of self and no and don't tell me what to do arising for me. Um, but I thought it was just really interesting sharing in our group. I, I think in my mind, what human wants to be told what to do? I, I think I have this like very like self, it's like this individualistic, maybe it's because I was born in America. I don't know where it's coming from, but like I, I've had enough with this. And then I think in our group, hearing from others who felt that, that these were really useful, really like uh, helpful guiding posts or just like ways to go deeper and kind of examine like what Coda was mentioning with intention, uh, I think just kind of helped me to wrench myself out of that a little bit and sort of see the whole picture. So I really appreciated the chance to hear from you and then to hear from uh, those in our group. So. Yeah. Oh, good. I think that you're not alone in that, you know, who wants to be told what to do? We all have that little bit. It's like, I, it's my life. I want, you know, in any moment, you know, and we take our preferences and make them into this is the way it needs to be because I like it, you know, and yeah. Thank you, Lillian. Mary Ann, please. Oh, well, I'm just the opposite. <laughs> I love the precepts, but what I turn them into is uh, guilt and, you know, I mean, I'm learning to gentle with that, especially with, uh, well, the, it seems like the Dharma teaching the, these years is all going toward that, um, I'm okay, you're okay thing of the sixties, which never uh, seemed very flippant to me then, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm human. <laughs> We're human. This person is like me. So um yeah. I just wanted to contribute that it, I, we can go the opposite way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one of the things about Philip's reframing, where he starts, to the best of my ability, I. And I think that's a really helpful way of looking at even some of our um, big intentions, to the best of my ability. I'm going to be present in my sit, you know, to the best of my ability. I'm going to try to say as kindly as I can something to a friend who hurt me, you know, or whatever. Um, or like um, I was recently talking with another Dharma friend who needed to stand up for herself at work, who really needed to assert for herself. And, you know, to, to the best of her ability, she was doing it. And, you know, sometimes we don't, we don't always do it perfectly. It's um surprise, huh? <laughs> that we don't always do it perfectly. Um, I think it's really important to really look when that guilt and self-blame comes up and just ask, you know, how is how am I being served by this? What is it 
what is it contributing to? And um, I don't think you're alone, Marianne, um, of having an inclination towards that at times. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Deanna, please. Um, I was talking a little bit in our group about, um, you know, when you make a mistake, like I don't want to look at myself as, oh, I'm this bad person because I made a mistake and it went against the precepts. But I think now, you know, like I've been more easy on myself and not that I'm making mistakes all the time or anything like that. Like I strive to do what's right and I strive to be kind. Um, but I think I'm just more like aware of it and like I, I'm aware before the choice happens. And, and so I just I appreciate this practice because I'm just more aware and I'm able to stop and think, you know, what do I want to do in this situation? Um, so I think that's how the, the precepts have helped me. Yeah. I love that. It's kind of that more aware also gives you the option of pausing before, before you, you do or say something. And, uh, I, I think many of us here are parents and, uh, Oh my goodness, some of the things that I said and did when my kid was little or even later, you know, and you're frustrated and there's that. And, and, um, uh, I remember when I first really apologized to him that it was so sincere and it made a difference, you know, that, um, sincere apology is, um, highly underrated, I think. Um, I've been, I have a whole bunch of tenants here and sometimes they get into these conflicts with each other and two of them were best friends and now they don't speak to each other. And I said to both of them, just apologize. Apologize for hurting the other. Not that you're fully responsible, but anyway, um, how we deal with when we don't when we're not perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Deanna. Anyone else want to share? I've got a few announcements at the end, but uh, Marianne, please. You're still muted. Marianne, you're muted. There you go. Okay. okay. Um Again, what came up for me with that when you spoke about what you said with your son, with me, it was just the opposite. I mean, my mother did terrible things and she's dead. And uh, I understand more as an adult, you know, where they came from and the frustrations, but how do I, how do I forgive? I mean, I I feel forgiveness, but I wish I could let her know that somehow. So I was on a walk yesterday with a Dharma friend who had a very challenging relationship with her father. And she ended up sending Metta to him. He's long dead. And felt that there was a kind of closure. And I recommend... I don't remember which book of Stephen Levine's this is in, but he has a chapter on finishing business that where it doesn't require that the person is still alive. 
and I strongly encourage you to explore that um, because really what's residual is still in here in you and um, there's a way for you to do some finished business um, Marianne, if you give me your email address, I'll try to find which book of Stevens that finishing business is in. Um, we used it once in one of the end of life mini sanghas that I was in with this man who wanted to have a, a closure with his ex-wives and neither of whom were willing to talk to him. So we did this whole long process of so that he could feel like his business was finished. Um, it's It can be painful, I, I think. And um, thanks for bringing that one up, too. Yeah, I still hear things she said to me, for instance, that were so harmful. And uh, yeah. oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. I'll send you uh, my email. Okay, good. Good. I'll look that up because it... He's long gone, but he was my very first teacher, and um, there's a lot of wisdom in his books. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, I just want to uh, give some announcements, the first being that...